So what a week in the world of sports. Um, I'll begin first by addressing the Texas Rangers win, the World Series win. Whew. Apparently I have a lot of Rangers fans in the house. It was a wild series when you think about it, when you take a step back and look at the Texas Rangers and what they accomplished throughout the playoffs and into the World Series. Uh, they blew past Tampa Bay and Baltimore. And then things got rather interesting and nail-biting with Houston. Uh, but they ended up beating Houston in Houston. And uh, finally, in the World Series, game one was a nail-biter. In game two, the Rangers absolutely got embarrassed. But then they defeated Arizona three games in a row to win the World Series. It was, it was a great series uh, for the Texas Rangers. It was, they were 11-0 and on the road. It's unheard of. Just absolutely crazy to win 11 games, be undefeated on the road. It was an emotional roller coaster for sure for a Texas Rangers fan. I was cheering for the Texas Rangers this week, um, although I will admit to you that ultimately my heart lies with the St. Louis Cardinals. So now all the Rangers fans, you don't like me because you think back to 2011. Uh, I'm sorry for that. It was a great, great uh, series for the Cardinals. But I was cheering for the Rangers uh, this past week, and it was great. It was an emotional roller coaster. Uh, speaking of emotional roller coasters and sports, I do have to also acknowledge the fact that my Oklahoma State Cowboys beat OU yesterday in the final Bedlam game uh, scheduled. That's why the, I'm wearing the bow tie this morning, the Oklahoma State bow tie. Uh, you might be thinking, uh, Jace, you're bragging a little bit, rubbing it in, and you're right, I am. <laughs> and I don't care. Um, but if you've been around Grace for a while, I've talked about Oklahoma State before, my love for Oklahoma State football. That's where I went to college. And you know that I, I can't watch the games. I can't watch the games. I didn't watch the game last night. I get too emotionally involved in Oklahoma State football. I didn't play, clearly. Like, I don't have the build for, you know, a lineman at Oklahoma State or anywhere, for that matter. Uh, but I get so worked up emotionally in the games, and it tests my sanctification I usually fail that test, and so I decided I'm just not going to watch them. Uh, but I did yesterday. I checked the score every now and then, and then finally, with only a minute to go, once I was pretty sure Oklahoma State was going to win, they were already lined up in the victory formation, then I turned it on my phone, pulled it up on my phone, and watched it, watched the celebration at the end, and it was glorious. It was amazing. Um, now, you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Mark chapter 14? And that's a good question. Really nothing. Um, <laughs> it was just a good opportunity to brag. But actually, it, it does have a loose connection to Mark chapter 14. Uh, because if you're a sports fan of any kind, no matter who your team is, whether it's Oklahoma State or OU um, or uh, the Texas Rangers or St. Louis Cardinals or Houston Astros, whoever your team is, as you go along this journey with your team, it is an emotional roller coaster, Right? Like, they take you on high highs and low lows, and it can happen quickly. You go from one extreme to the other. It's an emotional roller coaster we go on with our sports teams. And here in Mark chapter 14, we're going to be taking on, taken on an emotional roller coaster in the text. There are high highs and low lows here in Mark chapter 14 as we really prepare, as we come within days now of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And here in Mark chapter 14, there's gonna be this emotional roller coaster that I want you to feel this morning. This emotional roller coaster contrasting bad and good, betrayal and worship, and conspiracy and costly sacrifice. 
Go ahead and open your Bible up to Mark chapter 14. We're going, to be, we're going to be taking a look at verses 1 through 26 this morning. And there on your outline, you can see uh, the contrast of what we're seeing this morning. Number one on your outline to begin, we're going to begin this story with a conspiracy. A conspiracy. This is a low, low where the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Sanhedrin, the, the leading religious body there in Jerusalem, they, they conspire together to kill Jesus. Then in typical Markan fashion, he's going to pause this story. Then he's going to take us to the other end of the emotional spectrum, and we're going to see this beautiful story of a costly sacrifice. An unnamed woman in the text here in Mark who offers everything she has to Jesus. And then number three on your outline, we're going to resume the story we originally started and we're going to see the conspirator in this conspiracy. Judas, one of the 12, who's going to begin his plans to betray our Lord. Then after we look at these three points, we're going to come down to the table and we're going to talk about the costly sacrifice of all time, where the gospel of Mark has been leading us to all along as Jesus enters into a Passover meal with his disciples, memorializing the sacrifice, the costly sacrifice that he is soon to make. So again, grab your Bible, grab your outline, open up to Mark chapter 14. Let's look first at number one on your outline, the low, low here of the conspiracy. Mark chapter 14, let me read for you first verses one and two. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and the scribes, notice this, were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Again, remember it's Passover season. John Mark reminds us of this. It's the season of Passover and unleavened bread, these great festivals uh, in the Jewish faith. And of course, Jesus is coming now at this time to Jerusalem, not just to celebrate the Passover, but to present himself as the Passover land, the costliest sacrifice of all time. We've been reminded of this throughout the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is on his way to the cross. And now we're just days away. But what I want you to see here in verses one and two is the conspiracy, the plot that's being developed against Jesus. The Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they're coming together, they're, they've decided that Jesus must be put to death. There's this conspiracy developing in the text. And I want you to notice some of the powerful words here in verse one. They're seeking which has a very negative connotation in the Gospel of Mark. They're seeking how to seize him or capture him, arrest him by stealth. They're trying to do it in quiet, ultimately to kill him. They're seeking to seize by stealth to kill. Their intentions are very clear. The conspiracies developing. But notice as well there in verse 2, there's a bit of fear 
among the religious leaders. They fear, verse 2, they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So apparently knowing the thousands upon thousands of pilgrims who are coming into Jerusalem, many of whom love Jesus, perhaps they heard the crowds praising Jesus at the triumphal entry. Hearing all of this, knowing all of this, the religious leaders say, well, we're going to do it after the festival. We're going to wait until the people clear out because we don't want to create a riot. We don't want to create an uprising among the people. But unbeknownst to them, to the religious leaders, as they're plotting this conspiracy, a conspirator is emerging as well. But before we get to the conspirator, Mark pauses the story and we come to another story, number two on your outline, a costly sacrifice. Let's take a look, Mark chapter 14, verse three. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, notice, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Now throughout this text, I want you to imagine these scenes in your mind. Imagine being there in the home of Simon the leper, perhaps already healed of Jesus, but we don't know, we're not told. But Jesus and his disciples are there in the home of Simon the leper, and there in the home of Simon the leper, they're enjoying this meal together In the Gospel of Mark, an unnamed woman approaches Jesus. She's unnamed here in the Gospel of Mark. Now, in the other Gospels, in the Gospel of John, we're told that this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But Mark doesn't tell us. It's simply an unnamed woman. But notice her remarkable action towards Jesus. She comes to Jesus there while reclining at the table. She comes with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And notice she breaks the vial and she pours it over his head. She doesn't just sprinkle it, but she completely pours it out, a total sacrifice to Jesus. A costly Sacrifice, we learn. But sadly, look at the response that we see in verses four through nine. After witnessing this costly sacrifice, some were indignantly remarking to one another. And in other gospels, we learn that it's indeed the disciples who are having this conversation. Some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted. For this perfume might have been sold for other, over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But verse 6, Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. There's several things I want you to see here. Again, this unnamed woman in the gospel of Mark 
gives this costly sacrifice to Jesus. She gives everything she has to him there in that vial. But Jesus' disciples rebuke the lady, and then Jesus, notice here, rebukes the critics. Jesus defends the woman's actions, and indeed, he says, what she has done is a good deed. Or literally, you could translate it, she's done a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing. He, he sees this as an expression of love and devotion to him in light of his approaching death. What I want you to see here in this beautiful story of sacrifice is that this sacrifice of the woman, this is no ordinary gesture. This is no ordinary gift. It's no ordinary sacrifice. But John Mark here goes into great detail to show us the depth of this sacrifice. Notice a few words here. She, he emphasizes the vile. He emphasizes it's costly. He emphasizes the fact that it's pure nard. And he emphasizes the fact that she breaks it and pours it over his head. Again, if you're imagining this scene in your mind, it's like the camera lens of your mind is zooming in on the hands of this woman, breaking open the vial, pouring it completely, emptying over Jesus' head. It's this eloquent, beautiful, elaborate description of the magnitude of this sacrifice. She gave all that she had. And again, what's incredible is, at least in the Gospel of Mark, we're not told her name. And indeed, this anonymous woman, she never actually says anything. This unnamed woman says nothing. But then notice verse 9, Jesus says, what this unnamed woman does, this woman who says nothing, he says, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. I love what Jesus does here. It's a beautiful story of a costly sacrifice. By the way, I also want you to notice there in verse 8, Jesus says, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. You could translate that as, she has done what she had. What she had which links back to Mark chapter 12, verse 44, the story of the widow's mites, the same phrase you see there. The unnamed woman here in Mark 14 and the widow in Mark chapter 12 gave all that they had. One poured, the other cast, but in both situations, it was really their life. It was all that they had that was being poured out as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. And again, this story is set in beautiful contrast to the ugly conspiracy that's taking place behind the scenes. The religious leaders are developing this conspiracy to seize Jesus, to arrest him, to kill him. And unbeknownst to them at this point now, a conspirator emerges among the twelve. Let's take a look at number three on your outline, Mark chapter 14. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests, notice this, in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began, Judas began, seeking how to, notice that word again, betray him 
at an opportune time. Let's talk about a few things here. So resuming the original story that John Mark is telling about this conspiracy, now we see the conspirator. And we notice four times in these next verses we're gonna see that word betray. We see it twice here in these verses. Which to take note of that word betray in response to now the betrayal, the planned betrayal of Judas. He comes to them and he says he offers to betray Jesus to them and then they promise to give Judas money. Take note of that. And from this point forward, verse 11 says, he, Judas, began seeking. That same word we saw in verse one. Seeking how to betray Jesus at an opportune time. So now, the agreement has been made. The conspiracy is there. The conspirator emerges. Seeking, waiting, seizing, ultimately to kill. All Judas needs is an opportune time, which then brings us to verse 12. Notice Mark chapter 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, that's Jerusalem. And a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. And then verse 16 says, the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he, Jesus, had told them, and they prepared the fast Passover. So again, these verses are just setting the scene. They're setting the context. It's, it's Passover season. There's thousands upon thousands of Jews who are coming into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And to celebrate a Passover, it needed to be done within the city walls of Jerusalem. So Jesus, he's, he's asked by his disciples, well, where should we prepare uh, the place to eat the Passover? He has very specific instructions. He sends two disciples who Luke tells us are Peter and John to go into Jerusalem and locate the room. It's interesting, by the way, the sign that Jesus gives them is a man, verse 13, carrying a pitcher of water. Now, you might think this would have been a common occurrence, but actually it wasn't. Women are primarily the ones who carried water, so a man carrying Pictures of water would have been very unique. And so the disciples see this man. He leads them to a house. And then they're to ask the owner of the house um, and say to him, where is my guest room? Where is the guest room where Jesus may eat his Passover with the disciples? And then verse 16 again says, they went out, they came to the city, and they found it exactly as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover meal. But this is all setting the scene, all setting the context for the conspirator to emerge in verse 17. Notice. When it was evening, he, Jesus, came with the twelve. And they were reclining at the table and eating. And Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. There's that word again. One who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, 
one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is, notice the word, betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Again, these are pretty simple verses. So what I want to do is, again, to just slow down a minute and invite you to imagine this scene in your mind. If you've been around the church for a while, you've, you've, you've seen these verses probably every year, nearly every year as we talk about Passover and triumphal entry and ultimately the death and resurrection of Jesus. These are verses we frequently read, frequently talk about. So let's pause and, and just try to imagine being there. Imagine the scene in your mind, the emotional roller coaster if you were there on this particular Passover occasion. Imagine being there and hearing Jesus say these words that one of you will betray me. And imagine being one of the disciples saying, as John Mark tells us here, surely not I. Surely not I, Lord. Difficult to imagine how Judas, how he could sit under the personification of love, how he could learn from the God-man, God in the flesh, how he could follow Jesus and hear Jesus' teaching, but then turn around and betray him. Again, notice the repetition of that word, betray, 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 betray. We don't know for sure what led Judas to this moment, what made him willing to betray Jesus for a few dollars. But I would challenge you to consider we can know what leads us to forget Jesus and who he is and what he has done and in our own lives and in our own hearts to betray him just like Judas did. Indeed, there is a Judas in all of us. We're not told exactly why Judas did this. But make no mistake, sin often comes up with a good excuse. Our sin, we often come up with a good excuse to justify our disobedience, to try to make sense of it all, knowing all along that what we're doing is betrayal. One scholar says this, he says, we constantly have to remind ourselves in reading this story that when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, the other 11 disciples didn't at once turn around and point knowingly at Judas. I suspect that even if we were to transport all we know of psychology back into the first century and gain an interview with Judas on the day of the Last Supper, and even if he cooperated and answered all our questions, we still wouldn't get to the bottom of it, to a single identifiable motive that would make us say, of course, that's why he did it. Evil isn't like that. It's ultimately absurd. That's part of its danger and darkness. Again, I want you to feel the emotional weight here in this scene. The conspiracy, the plot, the betrayal. There's an emotional roller coaster 
that John Mark is taking us on in this passage. We see the costly sacrifice of the unnamed woman, and it's set in contrast to the cheap conspiracy from Judas. The woman offers a costly sacrifice, everything she has to Jesus, and Judas betrays Jesus for some money. There's a contrast being made here in the text, a costly sacrifice and a cheap conspiracy. It's emotionally agonizing as you enter into it. How many of you have been fans or are fans of the show The Price is Right? Yeah, Price is Right. It's one of the most successful, popular game shows of all time. Of course, the point of The Price is Right, how you win is... Contestants compete in order to guess the price of retail items, and the goal is to come the closest to the actual price without going over. But the key to winning is knowing what things cost. And here in Mark 14, we see this theme of what things cost. The costly sacrifice of the woman, the cheap betrayal of Judas, I'll ask you the question, what cost or what price tag would you place on your worship of Christ? If you were to assign a value to your worship of him, what would it be? And I'm not just talking about money. Money is sometimes easy, but money sometimes reveals what is truly in our heart. What's the price tag that you would put on your worship of Christ? Not just your money, but what about your time, your attention, your devotion, your adoration, your comfort? A great missionary of old, David Livingstone, once said, I never made a sacrifice. We ought not to talk of sacrifice when we remember the great sacrifice that he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Similarly, another missionary, C.T. Studd, wrote, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And that's the one thing, really, that I have for you this week. On the back side of your outline, you have some application questions to consider, but your one thing for this week, my question for you is to take note of the fact that this perfume, the costly sacrifice this anonymous woman makes, would have been sold, the disciples say, for 300 denarii, or about a year's wages. But the point is to ask yourself, well, how might you offer a costly sacrifice of your money, your time, your attention, your devotion, your adoration to Jesus in response to his costly sacrifice for you? Because again, what John Mark is ultimately doing here in the Gospel of Mark is he's taking us to this focal point of the, the costly sacrifice of all time. He's taking us to this moment that Jesus will soon enter into with his disciples of coming around the communion table as a picture and a preview of his coming death on the cross. But I want to ask you here in this morning, here this morning in this room, what price would you put on your worship? And I want to remind you that the price of your forgiveness is free because Jesus laid down his life for you and for me.
The price of our redemption is free to us, to you and to me, because of what Jesus did on the cross. The price is right indeed. And so for those of you here in this room, for those of you watching online, before we go any further, let me ask you, do you have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you accepted as a gift the sacrifice, the cost that he paid for you and for me? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are redeemed, that you are forgiven, that you are reconciled with a holy God? Not because of anything you do. There's no sacrifice you can make. There's nothing you can ultimately do that merits anything from him, but it's only by faith alone in Christ alone that we're redeemed. If you've not put your faith in him, I'd encourage you to do so right here right now. And Jesus, even knowing what Judas was doing, knowing even what you and I would do in our own betrayal, Jesus is doing something much bigger. He's preparing to make the most costly sacrifice of all time. And for that, I want to turn our attention to this table. At this time, if you haven't already, I want to invite you uh, to pass the baskets down the aisle to receive uh, the communion elements and to prepare your hearts to celebrate communion together. As we come to this table, I want also to call your attention to a few things I have here on this table that are symbolic of the text we see here in Mark chapter 14 this morning. Uh, first, we have, I have a replica of an alabaster jar. Again, a symbol, a picture of a costly sacrifice that this unnamed woman woman offered to Jesus and as a picture of the sacrifice that we're called to make to him. In the center of the table, we have uh, 30 silver coins uh, representative of the betrayal money of Judas, but also a reminder to you and to me of our own betrayal to the Lord, our own sin, The fact that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then finally, we come to the communion elements. A symbol, a picture of the costliest sacrifice that's ever been made. A picture, a story, a reminder of the gospel that saves us. Notice Mark chapter 14, verse 22 says, While they were eating, he, Jesus, took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Again, remember that Jesus is doing this in the context of the Passover. The Passover event was a celebration of God's deliverance of the Jewish people from slavery in in Egypt. But now what Jesus is doing is he's adding a deeper meaning, a new meaning to these very simple elements. And he's attaching God's promise to provide deliverance not just from Egypt, but from sin. And so again, here in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, we're told that Jesus took the bread, he broke it. He gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said to them, take it, this is my body. And as we take the bread together, let us remember the body of our Lord, his incarnation, his sinless life, his suffering, his resurrection, and the promise of our future bodily resurrection. Let's take the bread together. And in verses 23 and 24, we're told that when he had taken a cup, 
and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Again, keep in mind that this is a Passover meal. And there were four cups of wine in the Passover meal. I think that what Jesus is doing here is the third cup. The third cup was called the cup of redemption. And during this third cup, the cup of redemption, Jesus, again, the text says he gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples. They drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I want to highlight that word for, F-O-R. That word for demonstrates that what Jesus is doing here is on our behalf, it's in our place. It points to the substitutionary atonement that Jesus is about to make, that he laid down his life in your place and in my place for our behalf, doing what we could not do. And when we come around the table, we're called to remember the blood of our Lord, his life, his suffering, his covenant promise for us, the price that he paid for our redemption. Let's take the cup together. Then notice verse 25, Jesus said, truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, if I'm right that the cup Jesus just consumed with his disciples was the third cup, but there were four cups, what Jesus is saying here is that the fourth cup, which was called the cup of acceptance and the cup of praise, he did not consume that cup because the Jewish people did not accept Jesus as their Messiah. But what he's doing here is promising that one day in the kingdom of God, in the messianic kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus, he will resume this Passover meal. The fourth cup will be taken, the cup of praise, the cup of acceptance. When the Jewish people embrace Jesus as their Savior, and at that time we too will drink the final cup with him. And then finally notice verse 26, after singing a hymn, they, Jesus and his disciples, went out to the Mount of Olives. And so after the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn together. They left the upper room, the home there. They went to the Mount of Olives where Jesus will be betrayed. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. But the good news I have for you this morning is we come around this table and we see the different symbols and the elements here. I want you to be comforted by the fact that Jesus did all of this for you and for me. Knowing very well what he would endure, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He laid down his life in your place and in my place so that we could be forgiven, we could be redeemed. He's preparing himself to make the most costly sacrifice the world has ever seen. And in response to his sacrifice, let me pray and then we will sing together. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, Father, we do, as we come to this text, as we come around this table, we first and foremost confess our own sin, our own betrayal, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, in our own way, Father, have betrayed you. We've turned our back against you. We've rejected your authority. We've denied your goodness. We've sinned. But Father, also around this table, we come with hearts rejoicing, this emotional roller coaster we're in, of rejoicing over the fact that Jesus laid down his life so that we might live. That Jesus took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And that in his sacrifice, we're made new. We're made alive. We're forgiven. We're reconciled. We're redeemed. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. And Father, now as we lift our voices in praise to you, what else can we give but our heart, our praise, all we are? Father, thank you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.